Hey, it's Eric from Pop Cycle, the Pop Culture Connections podcast. On our show, we discuss just how incestuous pop culture really is, but in a really fun way. We take a chunk of culture, be it a movie, an actor, a song, a musician, or a book, and then by going as far away as possible, by way of six degrees of separation, we end up right back where we started. It's a lot of fun, so if you're so inclined, take a listen. We're also part of the Alberta Podcast Network, so you can find us via albertapodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hockey, one of the most masculine sports in Canada. So much so that a lot of Canadians feel a certain set of confidence when we measure it up to other sports. You know, if you don't believe me, go look up how many times hockey fans made fun of basketball or soccer fans for diving or something like that. Or like the injury thing, like basketball player sprains his ankle, they, they curl him off or the hockey player breaks his ankle, he stays and plays and finishes the game. In most cases, hockey is traditional masculinity at its peak. Yet when Kendall Coyne from the United States was invited to participate in the fastest skater event in the NHL All-Star Game, people took notice. I mean, this was a girl in line with the best of the best that professional male hockey players had to offer. Not to say that Kendall Coyne was an Olympic gold medalist and a world-class athlete in her own right. A lot of people were like, this is a female competing with men. And not only competing... But thriving. In the home stretch. 14.346. She beat her time yesterday. She was here practicing. Talked to her before uh, the events got started. She was a little nervous about it. And who wouldn't be? But an outstanding job by Kendall Coyne. Watch the feet move there. The angles are terrific. The edge work is outstanding. And the stride is just amazing. You can watch the miles per hour. Up top there at 22 miles, was, an hour was the peak. Some great stuff so, there and having some fun in the with the manliest guys. of manliest of professional sports in Canada. How does masculinity play with how we view things like violence and gender? My name is Herman Vijegas and this is Modern Manhood. Modern Manhood is brought to you by Next Gen Men and the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. If you want to support Next Gen Men empowering young men and helping to shape the future of inclusivity in our community, please go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash nextgenmen. Big shoutouts today to Steve Chamberlain, the Canadian Women's Chamber of Commerce, and Melody Sotka for supporting us and for helping us out in our journey to create a positive and healthier community. Again, if you want to support us, please go to patreon.com slash nextgenmen. This is my friend Megan, an ex-women's hockey player whose favorite NHLer is Jeff Skinner. Maybe this is like a weird, not a selfish thing, but I fell in love with Jeff Skinner um, when he got drafted. Okay. Because I was, we were the same age, we were a couple months apart, so we graduated 2020 and he was getting drafted and I thought, wow, this kid is you know a couple years younger than me and he's doing this and he's very cute and has a nice smile but like you know he's kind of living what I want to live out so I just kind of kept an eye on him and followed him and went to Carolina and he was playing well and got rookie mm-hmm. of the year and mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I've kind of just kept my eye on him and uh, may have made a couple of signs when he's come to Calgary. And <laughs> my young, young 20s moment, I can say that. But yeah, I just think he's a, he's a good player and it's cool that he has kind of a different background compared to most hockey players. Right, right. He's one of the good ones. Now, the story of Jeff Skinner is interesting because, as you'll hear here in an interview done by the CBC, before he was a pro hockey player, he was a pro figure skater. I think my mom tells the story that uh, my sister was figure skating and, and won a trophy or a medal. And uh, she said that I said to her, how do I win one of those? So it was all about it's winning all about a medal. Winning a medal yeah. <laughs> I guess somebody had a nice medal that I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted for myself. Now, why do I bring up Jeff Skinner? Well, his story is unique and well-documented. Because even though there are countless of celebrated male figure skaters, figure skating is considered not a masculine sport. And then Skinner went on to become a pretty popular hockey player. You know, he won Rookie of the Year his first year, and now he is one of the top goal scorers in the league. Yet, even at a young age, even with his talent at hockey, he had to prove himself. He had to prove his own masculinity. Did you ever get teased, though, by the guys on your hockey team that you were figure skating? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. And guys on other hockey teams, yeah. yeah. And did that bother you? For me, I felt like it was challenging. It was tough to be a figure skater. And, and if they were teasing me about it, it was like they hadn't tried it or they were, they they were jealous and, and something like that. There's a chance Skinner makes Skinner. Skinner dances. Skinner's in. He shoots. He scores. Skinner has a point. I think he was confident enough in his own skin that he, he wasn't affected by it. It was one game where I'm watching the end of the game. The team he was on had won. And out of the blue, he did some remarkable move that was a figure skating move, a spin and a jump. So after afterwards, I said, what, what were you doing there? And he said, well, the fellow was bugging me all game about my figure skating. So I was just telling him to look at the scoreboard. <laughs> and it was, it was an effective response. Megan McCormick, as you heard before, now runs the blog Mastering Health. But before, she used to play pretty competitive hockey in a small town. So since I was 10, there was like a, a movement for ringette in, in Yellowknife. So all the females played ringette and then all of a sudden it kind of poof and all the girls transferred to hockey. And then within my first year, I was I was goaltender full time. Nice. Um, so I think my mom hated that. <laughs> it's a very uh, inexpensive um position but my dad was a goalie oh. and really pushed for it and encouraged <laughs> it and uh yeah with that support just and I had beginner's luck so you kind of play the first couple games and you do really well and mm-hmm. you're like oh maybe this is my thing and mm-hmm. and then you suck for a long time <laughs> and then you practice more in it and um yeah I was thankful I went to a lot of hockey camps in Edmonton mm-hmm. and it just was like the perfect position to be an introvert but also play on a team and be social right. but kind of do your own thing. And this was so long ago when the hockey for females was really kind of just getting started, but it was really more emphasized on on fun and definitely skill. But it was, you know, just a great social time when with the boys teams. Though it's it's competitive, it's to win, um, it's to become something. Like there was something to look forward to, and mm-hmm. and there was a couple guys that went off and played junior, and one um, guy from Yellowknife got drafted. Mm. But at least with boys hockey, there. were there is an end goal or something to aspire to with female hockey. It's more just, you know, let's participate, let's have fun, let's be active. What year was but, this? Uh, it would have been like the mid, 
early 2000s, like early 2000s, okay. 2006-ish. Okay, okay, and that's when I like like Hockey Canada and stuff like that have been kind of just recently pushing. Stuff yeah, with, yeah, with and it definitely. Um, so through, I still continued playing girls and was able to go to Arctic Winter Games and Canada Games and and cool things like that. Um, so I still appreciated that I was building my skill with the boys, but be able to like represent something with the females. But just knowing. I could play university hockey, but then it's kind of like that's it. Yeah, like yeah. there's no there's no draft for me. There's no mm-hmm. big career. I don't know if I would have wanted that, but there was just I knew it wasn't there, so it, I just changed my priorities. Now I have always been interested in the intersection of men's and women's sports, and hockey was a natural fit because hockey is the dominant sport here in Canada. Now I love hockey. Okay, that's not true. I have a complicated relationship with hockey. I'm a passionate supporter, so much so that I get a chance to talk about the Oilers every week with my friend Elliot on another podcast called The 104. It's just, but it's just, again, it's just the bad look of the Oilers, right? Like anything the Oilers do now, they get dunked on. Like I went to an Ottawa, <laughs> went to, uh, an R hockey thread about Ottawa being dunked on, and then there was people dunking on the Oilers there. I'm just like, can I not get a break <laughs> out of this? <laughs> I just wanted to come in here and laugh at Ottawa. Yeah, look what I got. Yeah, look what I got. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I'm also like, there's something off about this hyper-masculine violent sport. Something that doesn't jive with me, especially when it comes to how it impacts the way we look at masculinities, especially here in Canada. I think a lot of hockey players grow up fast, and there's like that mentality when you're in midget and the younger years, the junior, the junior league, where it's all, you know, I'm... I'm tough, I'm cool, yeah. Yeah. I can be a little douchey, I can do what I want because I'm a hockey player and they get, get away with it. And I think he's always seemed really genuine. Um, my experience with other NHL players, I was um, doing some strength conditioning in my mm-hmm. undergrad and was actually shadowing a trainer who trained some Flames guys. And I, I thought I wanted to, to stay in that profession of training hockey players and just had like a super sour taste in my mouth, like taking off wedding rings and hitting on the other trainers and i was like i wikipedia'd you like you're definitely married (laughs) like oh you know so i didn't really want to stay in a stay in a job where it painted the most the majority of men that i was experiencing day to day in like this weird light and knowing that not all guys and not all hockey players are like that but Mm -hmm. it definitely gave me a weird sour taste so Mm -hmm. and i and i i've known that playing boys since since bantam but then seeing them as adults and you're like oh it's creepy like yeah it's and it's not what all men are and it's tough if you are in that kind of that circle of people and that's what's going on so i read a story about the study of violence of hockey and masculinity and a study that brandon university professor tim skoos was doing i I, you know again starting playing hockey at a young age and playing right through, and I continue to play to this day. There was two things, I think, that drew me to this research. And, and part of it is my own autobiography of, of trying to make sense of what I have seen in and through the game. Mm. Um, the stories that we tell, um, sometimes that would actually bristle against what I thought it was to be a boy or a man. And I think, you know, it's like a fish questioning their own water. You, you become so... Um, in, in, in embedded in a situation, in a time and a place that you don't question what you're being asked to do as a young boy or a man. 
And before you can really start to self-examine it, you're already in it. And the expectations and the norms that are embedded, I really struggled with. Right. And I had no, at the time, I, had, I felt I had no venue or outlet to say, what, what is going on here? And it was exacerbated when I got to university. Some of the behaviors, be it hazing, bench-clearing brawls, um, that hyper-masculine portrayal was, was actually uh, very difficult to kind of square up with my own constitution. So mm-hmm. that was one of the things that I think autobiographically, I, I was in, immersed in a narrative of which I didn't quite understand. The mm-hmm. second one happened in a, I am a social studies educator, and part of the social studies curriculum deals with identity, and specifically, although there's multiple markers, one of them is masculinity and gender. Oh, and we were having a class discussion one day, and a, and a young man had said to me, you know, it's nice that we're talking about masculinity and gender, but, you know, what the hell does this have to do with teaching? Mm. And so, kind of, there's a pregnant pause in our class, and I kind of went, I was a bit um, taken aback by his comments. Mm-hmm. And I said to this young man, I said, well, if you're on a playground and you are a junior high school teacher and you gaze upon a young boy in a playground who may or may not be being bullied, and does your own understanding of masculinity somehow project something onto that young boy about what it ought to be or how he should behave within a context of being masculine? Mm-hmm. So I think this idea that teachers, I think it's incumbent upon us to continuously elucidate, you know, further understandings of our own position in, in society. Mm. So those, those two factors, that autobiographical piece and my professional uh, career as an educator in social studies kind of just seem like natural bedfellows to say, what is going on when we start to talk about masculinity and how does masculinity, it, it, it actually is in our pores uh, and we, we are cultivated through institutions to think of it in a particular kind of way. So a young man in a class could say had, had not reflective or had been reflexive regarding his own identity and how he would actually respond to boys or uh, um, adolescents in his classroom. This story of how masculinity affects hockey players more thoroughly was reflected in an observation that Megan experienced when she was working with pro hockey players. So uh, I took Kinesis at UC and through that, I thought I wanted to do athletic therapy for so long and, and be on a men's hockey team and, and tape them up. And I found out that's very hard to do, especially as a female. So I thought about physio and I shadowed and it, it was a little monotonous and then I thought about strength and conditioning. So I did a practicum at a, a training facility in Calgary that trains quite a few NHL guys. I was the only female practicum student trainer. and. There was another student, a male student, and I just felt like we got treated very differently. Mm. Um, definitely wasn't getting the mentorship he was getting. Um, and it was okay. We were doing a lot of like midget and bantam players, so it was fun. Like The, the athletes themselves were really nice. Um, so I was kind of mixed. It didn't seem like it may be a forever thing. Right. And then I, I got my personal training certificate and then was working at a gym, and then uh, one of the trainers there did um, kind of one-on-one with a couple of Flames players, and that's when I started shadowing and kind of working with adult male hockey players. I was like, ooh, I'm too young to get a jaded view <laughs> of men, and and yeah, I think after, after high school, I haven't dated a hockey player since.
Fighting in hockey to me is a major sore spot. Still to the life of me, I, I don't know why it's necessary to use fists in hockey. The tradition's been around for so long, it feels like it's like assumed part of the game. Using his head as target practice. Had enough. Have a nice time in the box. I've never been in a in a hockey fight. Being a, a goaltender, I've always been able to kind of skate out of the crease and let the men handle it. But I remember being in a tournament um, in Bantam, and it was a boys' team, and it was myself and one other girl as a player. And I remember the boys were cage raging in their in their dressing room. Sorry, so what's cage raging. Cage raging is when you put on your helmet. So you're you're just normal clothes, but you put on your helmet and your gloves, and you basically box. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the boys often did this, whatever, but um, they egged us on. So the two females and like I use my blocker, <laughs> like, and this other girl was also very confident and wanted to show off and agreed to letting me use my glove and blocker um but of course the boys were egging us on it was like we were inferior because we were females but yet we had to prove ourselves because we were on this team with them um so yeah a bit of pressure but we're 13 and we're boxing and i chucked this girl in the face with a blocker and she had a helmet on but it still was just like this weird dynamic where you know it's it's not violence to another team, but it's like you have to kind of prove yourself and, and be tough. And I think that starts at a young age, um, whether the coaches and the parents know about it, because there's this whole locker room culture that is is very hidden. And mm-hmm. um, even in young Bantam and Midget, a lot of things went on that our coaches weren't aware of. And we dressed with the boys at that point. And, and incidents happened that we had to change dressing rooms. And so... Can you talk about one of those incidents or is it... Um, just like a lot of nudity and a lot of like inappropriate behavior. Um, and then we also had a, a coach in Midget who ended up getting um, investigated because he, he was basically verbally abusing us and he would kick garbage cans at us and, and call us swear words. And um, yeah, like it's... But that was just what boys hockey when you're 16 is. You're... Hmm. Um, so this is normalized back then. This is something yeah. that, like when people, when well, it's a room of thirty in. kids. So, like, you don't think it's right, but it's happening to everybody. So, um, you know, there used to be the adage, "Well, who gets hurt in a hockey fight?" Well, we certainly know differently now. But I remember a game at St. Avex. We were playing uh, Mount Allison Mounties, and we had a, a particular player on our our team who was had been had a, a lot of experience in fighting. He had played major junior hockey. Matt Allison was notoriously, um, most of their team was made up of high school players, of which they didn't have a lot of experience in fighting. Well, our player ended up putting a Matt Allison player in the hospital with a broken nose, a broken jaw, and a concussion. Mm. And I remember seeing this fight, and you could actually feel and hear the, the breaking of the bone. And I'm yeah. thinking, what? Where am I? Is it, mm-hmm. Just that disconnect um, was a stark reminder of what is going on here. Again, why does this narrative exist? Well, we still have people in the media who are downplaying the negative effects of fighting, 
the reason, oh, the reason that they're drinking uh, drugs and alcoholics, because they fight. You turncoats, you hypocrites, there's one thing I'm not, is a hypocrite. You guys, you were fighters, and now you don't want guys that make the same living you did. And then highlighting that maybe violence is natural and fighting will release the tension. Here's Tim on that. While fighting numbers are down statistically through major junior hockey and the NHL, Mm -hmm. but I still think um, one of the uh, current NHLers that I interviewed, they had a, their, their captain engaged in a fight. And he said that was the turning point of their season. Mm. Although in the same breath, most of the athletes I talked about wouldn't condone fighting. Right. However, all of them thought there was still a place in the game for it. So there's a really interesting um, something's going on here that we can yeah. actually voice something and then say, well, I still think it will never leave the game and it's an essential component of the game. There's a weird paradox in hockey because as simple as it seems that two players punching each other can be dangerous, there's a lot of people saying that's actually good. Heck, back in 2016, Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, had this to say. Fighting has been a part of the game. Uh, it does act as a thermostat in the game. This is a very physical, fast-moving, emotional, edgy game. And so your question, is... <laughs> your question presumes that it should be eliminated. And no, that isn't necessarily the case. No, well, the question is asked because this would be something that would be perhaps the easiest thing to eliminate that directly could lead to head trauma. Two guys punching each other in the head could lead to injuries, and that's something that the referees and you could take out of the game with a, with a whistle. What, what, what percentage of concussions do you think come from fighting in the game? I, I don't have privy uh, to, the, it, to the it, statistics. It, 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 the statistics will tell you that this is a physical game and fighting isn't the only issue, and in fact, fighting may help prevent other injuries. Tim thinks there's a lot more to that. So I remember the first time I had to fight, or I chose to fight, mm. I was 15 years old. And mm. after the fight, and even while in the fight, I'm, I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? But I thought it was what was expected of me. So you think there's scouts in the stands, you think that you need to make this particular stand. And I, I really did not have an understanding other than, well, that's what we're supposed to do. So these things accumulate over time, that you're trying to live in this uh, this identity that it's it's unfitting. It, it just doesn't fit you to say, this is who I want to be. And mm-hmm. you go to other elements of your life and it's trying to, I would say, perpetuate other ways of being. So it seemed like there was this juxtaposition as a, as a man or young boy in the world and what I was expected to do or what I internalized I was expected to do in a hockey rink or in a hockey game. And yet, the tension continues. And I wonder if we will ever get to a point where hockey might be different. You know, a place where this tension doesn't exist. Tim mentions that we don't even know what that's going to be like. One of the things that I I want to emphasize that I I, I think um, to discredit this narrative that I heard over and over and continue to hear that when men engage in violent, overtly, or let's say overly physical play, mm-hmm. 
oftentimes it's it's dismissed either through the, the narrative well it's natural that's what boys and men aspire to do it's in their dna mm. and i guess i would be emphatic to say the nhl or minor league hockey or major junior hockey the game as it currently stands in, in 2019 it's turned out this way mm. there's nothing by necessity that determines that the game has to be played this particular way. Yeah, totally. So I would suggest that hockey has a future of how it might be played that we don't know yet how that's going to unfold. It's an open possibility that the game might take radical and dramatic turns that we cannot predict what they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think mm-hmm. if you told, if you mentioned in the 1970s, to the players and on let's say the Brodsky bullies out of Philadelphia and said that fighting was going to be way down. Men are going to be wearing visors <laughs> and all the other changes to the game. Yeah. I, I think it would be, it's difficult to envision a future that we don't know yet. Yeah. So no. I, I guess I'm trying to say that let's keep the tension in the discourse around hockey of other possibilities that will emerge that we can play this game. This episode of Mar Manhood is brought to you by the awesome people at Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. So if you choose Park Power, your money stays in Alberta. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local nonprofits that are working to make a difference for their community. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kosowski, and we love local here in the APN. I mean, that's the whole point of the APN is to have local podcasts. So this totally makes sense for having um, an energy supplier like Park Power being one of our sponsors. So if you do need your energy to be reevaluated, please go check out parkpower.ca. So that's parkpower.ca. Both Edmonton and Calgary. I won't know anybody, and I'll I'll do a Kijiji ad, and I'll like put up some yeah, old, you do that, old right? like Max hockey tournaments pics of me, and just be like, I'm a twenty some female goaltender. I've I've played high levels hockey. I just can't commit because I travel a lot for work, and I would love if you need a goalie to come out, and I'm reliable and all this, and um, so I've come out to a variety of, of levels. Some really high, and some. You know, I'll see it later. I won't come back, but it's different every time. So usually um, most rinks don't have extra dressing rooms. So I just dress with the guys and I don't mind that. I like to at least meet them mm-hmm. before they're trying to cover my butt with slap shots. Um, <laughs> but sometimes like they'll say hi, but they won't acknowledge you. or They won't really talk to you. And mm. you're like, OK, this is really lonely and I'm in a team and. Uh, and other times they're super nice and they're chatting and they're seeing how life is. And then, you know, they'll invite you back to a, to the second team they play on and you can kind of build your way that way. But it's so different. Right. Um, yeah, it's really kind of hit miss. And sometimes I'll go back because the hockey was really good. And sometimes I'll go back just because the guys were really nice and the team mm-hmm. was supportive. And if the level is lower, but they're excited and welcoming, then I'm going to support them. One of the other aspects of hockey that I wanted to explore was the notion of the fear of femininity in hockey culture. At what lengths do men and women go to protect their own version of masculinity, which includes issues like injury and sexism? Most men in locker rooms 
there would be a hierarchy that all men in that room would know um, who would make a stand physically, mm -hmm. who is in this room could actually be dangerous to one's health. Mm -hmm. And I think um, what's also interesting is I think all bodies um, aren't as vulnerable. So if you're a smaller player or you're not of that ilk, or if you're expected to score goals, your body doesn't have the same jeopardy as, as a third or fourth line, quote unquote, grit player. Right. So there's also the distribution of what, of what men and um, which men are expected to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a disproportionate um, emphasis for the, if you're in a bigger, bigger body, uh, the expectations are different. This can easily be extrapolated to injury and the length men go to hide away or ignore injury when playing hockey. Or a lot of sports, to be honest. This is Megan again, telling her story of the time that she got concussed. A story I'm sure a lot of hockey players could relate to. 2017, I was concussed, um, which was like me playing for a random team. Um, 10 o'clock at night, kind of outside of Calgary, and got two slap shots to the head. And like the first one was from the hash marks. My helmet came off like it was... I don't know. I don't know what that guy was thinking shooting that close. Um, and I knew I had to be tough as the female on the ice getting hit so hard. And I'm holding back tears and like in shock. And the ref is asking me if I want to go off. And I have to say no, like let's keep playing. And then 10 minutes later, I get hit again with a wrist shot. And, you know, I'm not feeling well. And that was the second period. And I had to play through it knowing that. Like, I can't let this team down, even though I don't know them. Right. They just asked me to play, but I had to really, you know, be stronger than I think I think yeah. I am just to prove to these random guys that I was worthy of being on that team. And we won. Um, but after that game, like, I was messed up for months and had to be in rehab and um, had a long recovery from the concussion. So it's made me hesitate to play for right. a men's team. Yeah, that's fair. One of the things that I think that, that I've been still, um, it's kind of lingering with me is this idea of um, men's willingness to play through injuries. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that all of the um, former pros and NHL players have said that they, you know, had played through injury and if they had their career over again, they wouldn't. Right. That right. moved us into these policing tactics then that... Um, well, you know, you've got to suck it up. Mm -hmm. uh, they play through pain. So you think of that narrative too, um, to, to people's detriment. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's also an economic, one of, the, one of these guys who was a fourth liner said, well, if I'm not in the lineup, my job, uh, it's in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. so you start to realize that um, in, this, in, this in this day and age that, you know, there's surplus labor. And it really becomes an economic, uh, it, millions of dollars are on the line. So some athletes are going to say they would even pay off trainers not to be honest with their condition to the coach. Right. So this runs, this runs very deep into, um, again, I think there's nuances and, and multiple factors that contribute to these, these masculine ideals that just aren't bound within the hockey rink, but neoliberal discourse, mm -hmm. patriarchy, feminism, so on and so forth. Do you, um, 
do you regret that decision not coming off? I don't think so. I I don't know in any scenario where I would have come off just because it's so ingrained in me that mm. you have to be tough and you have to keep going and it's probably okay. And um, But once I got back to the dressing room and I was dizzy and the drive home was rough. Um, yeah. Yeah, the next morning to waking up. Uh, I didn't want to believe it was that bad, but it really was. Um, but I don't think going back a part of me would have gone off. I don't, Mm. I just think it's so ingrained that I'd have to tough it out. This is obviously a scary turn of events, but I hold hope because there are players like Daniel Carcillo who have called out hockey on many occasions. And this is him speaking about the abuse that he endured when he was a young rookie in the major juniors. And um, they would saw his goalie paddle um, and you would have to assume the position with your hands uh, inside of your locker, pull your pants down in front of the rest of the room while every, everybody kind of watched. The rookies waited in their stalls and 11 guys, 12 guys, 13 guys would take one, two, three licks. Um, some guys would get it harder than others because they were misunderstood or um, some of the guys thought we were a little bit off or weird and we just didn't fit that mold of Um, a typical masculine hockey player and it's amazing how you can bury emotional trauma and not even think about it and then something as simple as reading a paper and reading about somebody else's abuse can trigger all of these emotions and, and imagery and just it's so vivid you're right back in it silently as well Hockey players are pointing out people who are helping them turn a corner on their views of masculinity. And we see the game moving in a direction with a new generation of stars, a new generation of leaders, and a new generation of people leading a charge. In the three former NHL players that I interviewed, three of them um, pointed to a captain that they had had that gave them a different image of what it was to be a man. Mm. All three of them, these were individual interviews that they didn't know I was interviewing um, each of them, all pointed to the same captain. Interesting. Interesting. So that's what I thought. I thought, well, this is, this is really indicative that sometimes, and I'm wondering my own uh, background when I was growing up, if there was an image of a fairly, a man that had a lot of social capital or masculine capital, if you will, could say, I'm not going to behave this particular way. And this one athlete said, or one former NHLer said, it gave me the license to enact manhood how I thought I wanted to be. And I thought, that is provocative. That's very provocative. The second thing that I I want to, I guess, um, I I think it's appropriate to your question, is that when I listen to many NHL commentators, and I would say that on the one station that I watch, I would say there, there's a generational divide of the age of these men and the current state of the NHL. Oh, totally. Yep. <laughs> I find them yearning for a yesteryear that is romanticized. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think one of the announcers has been their career was ended or at least th- th- it contributed to the ending was concussions. Mm-hmm. So even in the face sometimes, Jermaine, of, of these athletes being injured, to the point of ending their career, 
there's still an aspiration that the game is losing something. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not as it's not like it once was, and that's perceived as a deficit. That these athletes today, well, you know, they're just not um, competing in a way of the physicality. So I think trying to move trends and thinking and being is is a very challenging thing when you've spent your life doing something in a particular way. We don't often say in culture that, you know, if it doesn't work out for you doing it this way, then you can be this way. Mm-hmm. If you look at former enforcers, they were, they were conditioned to be in the world, in the hockey rink, in a particular way. Once that enforcer role was gone, they didn't, they couldn't, most of them couldn't go and retrofit their skill sets. Right. They were right. antiquated, right? They were, they were now perceived to be dinosaurs. The game has passed them by. So I find that really interesting. Another thing that was interesting to me was, what about the non-straight male players? What about the gay players, the trans players, the women players? Where are they in the culture? Are they invited in? Sometimes, like, in a different way, too, I feel like they almost are, like, they kind of, you know, they all kind of rise and, like, have to be bigger. (laughs) They puff up their chest a bit. Yeah, and then sometimes on the ice... You know, I always, I have a, a ponytail, so I have hair coming out, and you always kind of have the other team kind of looking at you and, like, not sure what to think. <laughs> and, and then usually a couple shots in, and I'm keeping up, and they're like, okay, like, we can actually shoot hard, and, you know, we don't have to take it easy. Right. Um, yeah, so it hasn't been too bad. Um, my, like, best childhood moment is going to, like, um, I think it was, like, Creed or Fort Vermillion, like, a really small town tournament, and I was on a boys' team, and... Um, the the other team didn't know I was a girl until we were shaking hands and just like their reactions and like telling their coach like she's actually a girl <laughs> is something like I'll always cherish That's so thinking cool. that I could I could pass as a, a strong you know competent fast quick male goaltender that's always really cool um, do you find it surprising that there has been no public announcement of a gay NHL hockey player and many of the athletes thought, you know, they weren't surprised based on how um, the environment that they were raised in. Um, but they said it's not like players don't wonder about other players that, quote unquote, may be gay. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's this, there's this underlying suspicion or questioning about certain hockey players over the years, that if they're gay or not. And I agree with you. What Statistically, it seems improbable. Yeah. Um, and I and I I think there's a lot of nuance here too that we it's not just the hockey culture that these men may not, may choose to come out or not. So I think there's a lot of other factors that might contribute to that as well. Yeah, absolutely, no, you're totally right about that. It, it, I think it's statistically improbable yeah. that no gay men have played in the NHL. Megan, for her part, recognized something that maybe a lot of marginalized groups may have felt before. That if we invite more, quote-unquote, non-traditional players, then that means that I'm not special anymore. Something she says added to the stigma. I, I like, will acknowledge I even, like, had this weird stigma to girls playing hockey. Like, I kind of only want to be the female, only female on the oh, ice. Oh, interesting. Like, if the other team has a girl, or if the team I'm playing for has a girl, I'm, like, kind of put off. Like, is this team, like... I don't know. It's like, are you saying, like, is this team good enough? Or is this team, Almost. Like, okay. And that, like, 
Yeah, and it's this weird thing that I've definitely internalized where I I want to prove myself and be, you know, you know, the best female out there so that they accept me. Um, but yet I have this weird feeling towards other girls. And it's mm-hmm. not, I don't think I project it on them. I, I'm always excited to, like, have another girl because we're almost just like an ally right away right. Uh, on the ice. But I still have this thinking in my mind, like, oh. It's a bit of competition. A bit, yeah. yeah it's yeah, like yeah. this weird, I have to compete and, and look better than you in front of these guys to prove that I'm huh. I'm a competent person and I deserve to be on the ice. I get it. I get it. I feel like I know that as like as a Latino, for example, if there's like, oh, like, oh, I'm special. I am a Latino. Yeah, and I'm, the I'm one a person. I'm that, a special snowflake. Yeah, and <laughs> you're taking my yeah. like spot. <laughs> and now there's two special snowflakes, and we're not that special. Yeah, now we're not special anymore. And it, yeah, no, I had that at work too. And you're and, and it's weird, right? Because it's like it makes like pragmatically it makes no sense, right? Well, and I assume we're the only ones that really feel it. I don't mm-hmm. think. The guy see two girls and, it's, you know, it's no different than one girl. Right. <laughs> like, it doesn't shake things up, but we feel it because we're so used to being yeah. the only one. I mean, it's like a weird sense of, like, tokenism or it's a weird yeah. sense of, like, no, I get that. I totally understand that. I totally yeah. feel that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I feel, like, I, I feel this strongly, and um, but then I also feel shameful that why mm-hmm. am I mm-hmm. having this feeling towards another female? Like, yeah. we I, should be supporting each totally, other. Totally, and yeah. I you know have great friends that play hockey and and think that's awesome yet if if this is a high div men's game i want to be the only female but then we see things like kendall coin and others at the all-star game things start to look up a little bit right there's a poignant shot of um the, the camera pan to Connor mcdavid mm-hmm. after the um the, I, I don't remember her name but the, the woman who won the, the fastest skater? Skater. oh yeah kendall coin yeah and the expression on his face was a, like it was like unbelievable. And I think he just, if you could read his mouth, he said, wow. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think that image for me kind of captured the capabilities and the skills that the women are bringing to this game. And I would love to extend this research into the conversations that women have in their dress rooms about how they ought to be playing. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have open ice hitting, they have contact. Yeah. Do they? Yeah. What is the narrative? Do they have a narrative that that actually bumps up against the male narrative of hockey? They can say yes, we're going to work hard. Yes, we need to be assertive. Yes, we need to be aggressive at times. But what what kind of discourse do they engage in with one another and on the ice? Uh, I don't know, and that yeah. would be very interesting to know. But I would also suggest that we it's there's a gender divide here. I would think. But there's also other countries don't play the game how Canada does. Right. 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 So if you look at other um, typically, you know, European countries or the, you know, the original Russia series in 1972, I think that was one of the first times we were confronted that other cultures, other ways of playing the game don't replicate what Canada does. Mm-hmm. So again, it's another illustration that the game doesn't have to be played in, a, in in this particular context, in this particular way. I think with more uh, kind of notoriety, we, we have like Cassie Campbell and Haley Wickenheiser and the, the big women who've kind of paved the way. I think it's going to continue getting bigger. I think it would all, will also um, 
kind of stay in the shadows just like any other male sport. If you are watching the Olympics, it's always the the male sports or the male side of of the sports that people are more drawn to in terms of viewership and mm-hmm. and connection. So I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to keep getting bigger. But I I can't say we're ever going to take over the NHL and, <laughs> and be a more highly viewed. Do you think there's going to be a women's hockey player in the NHL? Well, there already has been. There's been a couple goalies play. Yeah, but like... But yeah, like a period. (laughs) Yeah, it was like more Uh, than a period, full-time. But that gives you so much hope, right? Yeah. Uh, That was like in the 90s, too. I know. I know. That was groundbreaking. Yeah. But like Shannon's um, Zabados playing in the the European League. Yeah, yeah. And playing for Nate and on the men's team. Yeah. And I think it's so unique being a goaltender because you're a bit out of the physical realm of of the hits and... um, so it's a it's a cool position because you do kind of have that. It's different, right? It is different. Yeah. Um, I would love a female goaltender in the yeah. NHL. Like, <laughs> I think that's the place where women could thrive. Oh, totally. The in the, the in flexibility the, and mm-hmm. the speed and um, I think it would be really great. I think so too. I, I think it's it's really doable. I think in, so too in I our feel, lifetime. Yeah, I feel like that that would be such an easy thing just to find like a. Uh, a very good female goaltender and just have them try out for a hockey team mm-hmm. like an NHL team I feel yeah. like I don't know like and it I just think, makes more sense <laughs> well right and it's the National Hockey League it's not it's not the, the male it's not hockey, the men's National, National hockey. hockey League exactly right. and I think as long as we're providing equality in tryouts it's the best player gets on the team right so if yeah, if a female cool. goaltender yeah yeah <laughs> I know, like, I don't know all the politics behind it, but I yeah. understand that it's not that easy. Yeah, totally. But if there was some sort of understanding that it, you know, you earn your spot, then I think it could be a possibility, and I think that would be really cool. And I would definitely be watching, and that would bridge the, you know, you're watching the best players in North America, and that's what we all want, right? One of the lasting things, which is always the theme of episodes of Modern Manhood, conversation is always the key. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, this is really, I think you're right, as an educator, this is the spot where I, I, I want to settle into. And I, and I think, I don't mean to be, you know, trite with this comment, but I think I don't see another way around this or through this other than through conversation. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean from a pulpit saying uh, this is the way it must be, these declarations, but how do we engage students in my classroom, per se, or young boys playing, how they, each of us, internalize what it is to be a boy and a man, mm-hmm. and to put those things to interrogate them. I think that's, that's all of our work. These are existential questions, I think, of who do I want to be in the world? Yeah. And to take them on in conversation. So it can, get, um, it can get messy. I don't think there's definitive answers. But I hope that in my classroom or with the athletes that I talk about, um, even today when I play hockey, it's like, why, why do we have these comments in our dressing room right. that actually are, are misogynistic yeah. in their nature? Now, it's hard. You can see the difficulty of doing that on every day that you become that person. Yeah. You're ostracized. Like you're, it's a very, I'm not saying we can do it every day, but where are the venues, the spaces 
and the openness around discourse that allows an inclusivity to be at least in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If yeah. not, rule changes too. I think sometimes it might fall to the point that we have to have actually legislation that alters things too. And I, I wouldn't be adverse to that, but I, I think ultimately I would like to see each individual athlete start to bring into question. And I think it's, it's that questioning stance that we ought to have uh, to the game that we're playing. Thanks again to Tim Scoose and Megan McCormick for taking the time to talk about their research and their life. All episodes of Modern Manhood are archived at modernmanhood.org, or you can just find us wherever you get your awesome podcast. On the next Modern Manhood, we're going to hear from one of positive masculinity's biggest advocates, Terry Crews. See you next time on Modern Manhood. <laughs>